prepared. Got to get my notes ready. Okay. <laughs> um, so thank you, everybody, for being here. We are going through the Gospel of John. And the past couple of weeks, I just want to remind us, right, we have been going through John. John uh, uh, Jesus has been talking with Nicodemus. And a couple of weeks ago, we came across, right, the verse of all verses, right? The gospel in one sentence, John three sixteen, And we looked at that and we kind of went deep into that and saw that how if we memorize John three sixteen and then four little concepts that all start with a D, all of us then could tell anybody and everybody the gospel in, let's say, three minutes, right? That's when you memorize John three sixteen, you start with the danger we perish, right? We start with the design of God, how he loved us and sacrificed for us, the duty of man in response, and then the destiny of all believers, which is eternal life. So if I'm in a car wreck and I'm laying on the side of the road, I got three minutes to live, what hope do you have for me, right? What hope do you, you don't know if I'm a Christian or not. You come up on the accident, I've got about three minutes, what hope do you have for me? That right there, walk it off, that's what, yeah, that's probably what I would say, but you know. <laughs> All right, get up, people, let's go. You got the four D's in John 3.16. Anybody and everybody can memorize that, right? You can give that person hope. If you can't heal them, if the ambulance is, of course, not going to be there in 20 minutes, right? I mean, you can give this person hope just with that. And then after that, though, we saw, okay, this was like the mountaintop verse, Right? But then after that, Jesus kind of, you know, we celebrate this. But then the last, the next couple of verses were a little serious. Because then Jesus said, okay, right? I did not come into the world to judge the world, but that I might save some from perishing and bring them into eternal life. But we saw that there were no neutral people. Because you're either on one side or the, or, or the other and... Jesus said basically what he said, I did not come into the world to judge the world, to condemn the world. Why? Because the world is condemned, and there's that one little word, already. Already. What does that mean? That means there are no neutral people. That means the steady state of all mankind, the default, is you are condemned already. Jesus didn't come to judge you, it's already done, right? He came into the world to rescue you on a rescue mission, all right? So we covered that. Now, this week, we're going to look at John the Baptist has kind of been in the gospel of John, hit and miss. What we want to look at this morning is that while Jesus has been talking to Nicodemus, right, John the Baptist has still been baptizing, and I think John, the gospel writer, wants to show us that all this that Jesus said, John the Baptist still affirms that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the rescuer of mankind, okay? Um, so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. But we're also going to see something about John, because in this section of Scripture, sorry, John uh, writes some things that John the Baptist says, and I think they're some of the most profound sentences in Scripture, and they speak to John's focus on Christ and his humility. And I think sometimes in this day and age, I'm kind of glad, you know, this is one of the things, again, I like 
about just preaching through books of the Bible, right? I can't skip anything, right? I can just, I, I can't preach on my, you know, favorite topics and then, oh, this is a little hard. Like last week was a little difficult for a lot of people because, you know, those verses are, are challenging. I just can't go, oh, those are too challenging. I got to skip over that. I'm just going to preach on John 3, 16. That's great. You know, I can't do that. I got to preach through the whole thing. And I think this time, I love how these sections of Scripture show not only that John still supports and he still affirms, he still knows who Jesus Christ is, but these passages here say something about humility. And I think all of us nowadays can use a dose of humility, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So let's go ahead and open our Bibles, uh, your Bible apps or your Bibles. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we actually have some underneath the seats that you can take a look at. We can turn to John. We're going to go John chapter 3. And we're going to start uh, with verse 22. We're going to go 22 to 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So in the first couple of verses of our text this morning, right, both Jesus' disciples and John the Baptist were baptizing people who were coming to them. You know, then in verse 25, there appears to have been some sort of discussion or debate about the Jewish rite of purification. I mean, this is all we're told. This is it. But me, though, I have to wonder. I look at this and go, wait, what was this discussion, right? Why was there even a discussion? I mean, but when they brought up the discussion to John the Baptist, it moved from that and it became a comparison, like a questioning John's baptism and that of Jesus, So we don't know any more about this, but I think the debate had something to do with like what Jesus said to Nicodemus up in verse 5. So if you go to John 3 verse 5, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot even enter the kingdom of God. Remember, we looked at this and we discovered that in order to see and enter the kingdom of God, right, one had to be born again. That's what Jesus said. You had to be born again, but you also had to be, what he says here, born of water and the Spirit. So you had to be spiritually reborn, but you also had to be cleaned, cleansed. You had to be forgiven of sins that each of us carry due to our sin nature. We are all children of Adam and our rebellion against God, right? Perhaps the issue surrounded the role of baptism, 
right, in this cleansing. Maybe the Jews thought that baptism would actually literally clean you of your sin. Many people today think that baptism is a necessary part of salvation, but nowhere in scriptures is this stated. So I don't know. Maybe there was a discussion about what Jesus taught, what the Jews believed, where John the Baptist was and all this. Okay, but that's all speculation. I don't want to speculate too much. That's always dangerous when you get to the Bible and you go, ooh, I wonder why. You know, but John just throws this verse out there and then he doesn't even talk about it. I'm like, okay, well, I don't know. But I think it had something to do with baptism, right? We won't know until we get to heaven and then we can just ask, you know, John, what did you mean by this? You know, we might not even care at that point, right? So who knows? But it's clear though, I think the discussion around purification did turn into a comparison between what Jesus was doing on one hand and what John was doing on the other, right? Because John's disciples, I think, were basically complaining that Jesus was having great success, right? John's disciples, and apparently this other Jew, typically when John says the word Jew, he doesn't mean just some ordinary Jewish guy. He means a, uh, uh, a member of the Jewish religious sect or somebody like a Pharisee or a scribe or somebody that was important, not just some dude off the street, right? So, so John's disciples were talking with this Jewish, let's say, teacher, Pharisee, possibly. They came to John the Baptist and said, hey, verse 26, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. His disciples were probably thinking something like, hey, we got a good thing going here, John. Now all of our people are going somewhere else. John, what do you think about that? What are you going to do? You know, it seems like his disciples possibly were a bit resentful of Jesus and frustrated with John. Yes, he was still continuing to draw a large crowd, but John the Baptist crowds were getting smaller and smaller as people were starting to go to Jesus, right? As the popularity of Jesus increased. And I think maybe John the Baptist's disciples might be a bit jealous of Jesus and a little bitter with John. That's kind of why the wording is what it is. But John the Baptist answers his disciples with a truth that literally I could stay on just for weeks and because it's so rich, right? What's he say? John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. That is probably one of the greatest truths of the Bible. So I am going to stay on this just for a few minutes because I think this deserves some, we got to flesh this out a little bit, right? And I think that statement is absolutely true, right? Our next breath is from God, okay? Our next second of life is from God and God alone. How many times do we take our next breath for granted? How many times do we take our next minute or hour or day of life for granted, right? I tell people we're going to have an Easter egg hunt on April 1st. Who knows if any of us are going to be here on April the 1st? I mean, honestly, we assume that because, you know, mathematically, right? Probability is yes, but who knows? We take these things for granted, my friends, but all that we have, our next breath, our next meal, our next minute of life is from God and God alone, <clears throat> Right? Every friend and family member that we have, every moment of our lives, all that we have, and I'm going to say both good and bad, is from an all-wise God who directs the world and all that is in it. 
I mean, think about this. What may seem like a bad circumstance today may be a life-saving act of God (coughs) that we may understand days, months, or even years from now down the road. We don't know. God works behind the scenes in what's called providence, his providence, that we may not know. But God provides those things, okay? We may not even know this side of heaven, but we can know this for sure, that God will never leave us or forsake us. Okay, that is, I mean, how is that not a promise that we need to tell ourselves each and every day, right? Each and every day. Remember this. Remember this, right? God will never leave us or forsake us. Write it down. Put it as your screensaver, you know, on your phone. For those of you that have fridge magnets still, stick it on your fridge, right? Um, But let's be grateful for all that we have because we know that we would receive nothing unless it is given to us from God. Now let's look back at our text this morning, right? John's disciples are a little resentful and frustrated because, oh man, everybody's going to Jesus. Our crowd's getting smaller, right? But John's reply settles the matter. You know, he ans- his answer is the reason, he, uh, his answer is that the reason these people are leaving him and going to Jesus is that God is giving these people to Jesus, okay? Look at John. We're going to get into this a little bit later. John quotes Jesus, uh, John the evangelist, the gospel writer, quotes Jesus in 637. All that the Father, Jesus is saying this, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. These words here of John the Baptist are here because they underline and confirm the sovereign work of God in people coming to Christ. Right? Let me say this too. Every person that walks in these doors here in this church is sent by heaven. Right? We cannot even get one thing unless it is sent to us by God. Right? Every single person here is here for a reason. Right? You have been sent here for this very moment by the Lord above. Right? No more, no less. We need to remember that. Right? It doesn't matter where we are, what we do here. Everybody is sent by God. Where we go when we talk to somebody, I know, you know, Terry has talked to a lot of people. She was sent by God for that particular time, for that particular moment. Right? We would have nothing here, no one, had not God seen fit to send everyone here this morning. Right? And honestly, that's why I preach the way I do. That's why I go through books of the Bible. That's why I preach Christ and Him crucified. Because I must be diligent, right? Because Christ will draw all whom the Father has given him unto himself. And if I don't preach Christ, then, you know, Christ is going to use somebody else. Because God will draw his people unto him. And I must be a servant of the word and of Christ, okay? So let's look at verse 28. John the Baptist makes it clear to his disciples what his focus is and why he's here in the first place. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness, that I said... I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John tells his disciples that this is no surprise. Look, yeah, he said, look, it's, yeah, all our people are going to Jesus? Great. There's no surprise there, right? (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) My throat is really dry this morning. John tells his disciples that this is no surprise because 
God sent him for this very thing. That people would turn away from John the Baptist and go to Christ. Right? Remember, John was the forerunner. He was the forerunner. This was God's plan. John was given this role by God, and he was content with it. Right? Gather people and then give them up to Jesus. This is the plan. John knows it, and quite frankly, he's happy with it. Right? Because why? Because he can do this role and be this service, do this service for his master, for Christ. Right? So John continues to explain this to his disciples in verse 29. He uses a parable or an illustration to help his disciples understand his relationship to Jesus and why he is joyous to see all these people then go to Christ. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John introduces us to this illustration, this parable that's used actually all through the Bible, right? And it's a picture of Christ and what I call the capital C church, all of God's people, right? Who is the bridegroom here? Jesus. Who is the bride here? Those who truly follow Jesus, the church. So at the wedding, the bridegroom, he's the important man, right? He's the one getting married. His friend may stand by him and be happy and rejoice with him, right? Indeed, right, in the Jewish culture, you know, he, he would actually do more. He was like the main organizer of this whole thing. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he was like the most important person outside the bridegroom. He was responsible for like all the details of the wedding, you know, in particular, he actually brought the bride to the bridegroom. Best men, what do you think, huh? <laughs> Today, the father brings the bride to the bridegroom. In Jewish culture, it was like the best man who would do that, okay? But then when he had done this, his task was over. He said, okay, I've done this. I'm not, it's going to be center stage the bridegroom and the bride are going to be center stage. I'm going to step over here. I'm going to get out of the way. The spotlight's going to be on them, right? But a wedding is a happy occasion, right? Not just for the bride and groom. I mean, everybody in the wedding party, everybody who attends is happy because these people are getting married, right? It's a joyous occasion, right? The friend is full of joy. So the news that his disciples brought him, you know, which is actually what John the Baptist was longing to hear. It filled his cup of joy to the fullest because, oh, great, now I've done my, do I've done my job. I've completed my mission. People are going to Christ. That's what I'm here for. I'm going to stand back, and I'm just going to praise God for this, right? The church is the bride of Jesus, not his forerunner. The church is not the bride of John the Baptist, it's the bride of Christ, right? So John, his mission being fulfilled, is joyous that he can do this kind of work for the Lord. Okay, but let's also note, though, what John said about the bridegroom's voice. I think this is important. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Why does John the Baptist rejoice in hearing the bridegroom's voice? I mean, maybe John's just happy. The wedding's here, you know. He's like, yay, but let's look at John chapter 10. Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. To him the gatekeeper opens, he's, he writes, Jesus says. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. 
When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. Why? For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him. Why? For they do not know the voice of the stranger. So the sheep hear the voice of the good shepherd, and they know him, and they follow him. The bride hears the voice of the bridegroom, and they are joyous, and they come to him. Even John the Baptist hears the voice of the bridegroom, and he rejoices that he may come to him also. So think about this. Friends, those that hear the voice of Christ then come to him. They follow Christ. Are you hearing? Do you hear the voice of Christ through the word of God, through what's being said this morning? Right? The last words, though, of John the Baptist to be recorded in this gospel, I think are one of the greatest sentences that ever fell from human lips. Okay? What's it say? Verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. I mean, it's hard enough to gather people together for a serious purpose, right? Somebody, I got to do this. Now, unless you're the chiefs, maybe everybody just flocks to go see them, I guess, right? It's not hard to gather for a game. But after they've been gathered, it's even harder to insist that they go follow somebody else. Okay, but John did just this, right? This is a measure of John the Baptist's character and his humility. And notice the use of the word must. He must increase. I must decrease. John knew it was just not like advisable. Yeah, you know, I think it's, it's, it might be pretty good for y'all to go see Jesus. Uh-uh. That's must. There was compelling divine necessity. They must go. I must decrease. Christ must increase. They must go to the bridegroom, not just the friend. John was the forerunner, the servant, but Jesus is the bridegroom, right? It was never the part of the servant to take the master's place. And sometimes humbly knowing our place in life, in the church, in general, is sometimes a hard lesson I think we got to learn, right? So for the next couple of minutes, I'm going to sort of conclude by walking us through what humility means in the life of a Christian, Okay. Albert Einstein said, you do not really understand something unless you can explain it to your grandmother. (laughs) Okay? I always say, you don't really understand something unless you can explain it to your kids, (laughs) especially when they're little. (laughs) Okay? So one author defines humility this way, the downward disposition of a Godward self-perception. And I'm like, I have to read that a couple times. I'm like, "What? What what did he even say? That's a little complicated for me, right? I don't think I would give that to my kids, right, or my grandmother, okay? Um, But I think, to be honest with you, I think the best definition for humility is verse 30 from John the Baptist. He must increase while I must decrease, right? The New Living Translation of the Bible says it like this. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. In other words... The triune God must ever increase in our hearts and minds while our own self must decrease. Okay, that's what humility is, right? So let me make a few observations about what it means to be humble, right? I think we could speak for weeks on this. The Bible says a lot about humility, but I'm just going to throw out a handful of observations. They're in your notes. And like I said, I think a lot of us, not maybe us, but I think in general, 
society in general needs a real huge dose of humility because everything is about me. I, me, my. Everything is about me. It's my feelings, you know, what I deserve, what I'm owed, everything like that. Okay, I think we need a dose of humility. And the first part is humility consists of a Godward focus. He must increase, right? And I think, judging from these verses, we can see where John the Baptist's focus was. His disciples were all worried. They're going to him. They're going to him. John the Baptist said, yes, they are. That's great. I'm happy for it. Why? Because he must increase, right? John saw himself in the light of God. And I think we must strive every minute of every day to see ourselves in God's light, right? What does, what does, what does, who is God and what is he like, right? What, how, how is God majestic? What are some of his attributes? What is, you know, one of my favorite passages in, in, in the Bible is this chapter, this first couple of verses in Isaiah chapter 6, because Isaiah is taken up into the throne room of God and he, he gets a glimpse of God. And I mean, it's like, he's just bam, <laughs> okay? He writes this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king. Now, when when we see God for who he truly is, I think, then we understand who we truly are. Right? This is why I think reading the scriptures constantly doing theology. Everybody's like, oh, no, not theology. You know, theology is nothing but the study of God. If you, if you love someone, don't you want to know all about them? Right? I mean, I want to know all about my wife. I still am learning after 34 years of marriage about my wife, right? Because I love her and I want to know more and more and more, Okay? And this, I think, is one of the most important things we can do as a Christian. The more we read the Bible, the more we study God, the more we want to know him, the more we learn, then the more we come to grips with the magnificence of this great creator God. That's point number one. But then point number two, all of that then leads, humility then produces in us a lowly spirit. John Calvin writes, Man is never sufficiently touched and afflicted by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. Very true. When Isaiah saw the Lord in the throne room, it said he became lost. The word means destroyed. It means become undone, right? In other words, when Isaiah saw the Lord, he unraveled. I mean, he just, he just, he disintegrated. He unraveled, right? What's the opposite of a lowly spirit? Pride. Pride. The Bible is full of instances where God brings down the proud and exalts the humble. Psalm 147.6 says, The Lord lifts up the, hum- lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. 
All right, there's many more scriptures we can go through, read the Psalms, read the Proverbs especially. They're chock full of wisdom on one side, folly on the other, humility on one side, pride on the other, okay? Job's reaction to the uncreated majesty of God left him crying out this at the very end of, of Job. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, let me say this. Humility is not weakness. Okay? And humility is not self-hate. Okay? I mean, quite frankly, you know, everybody today seems like they're just so self-centered and puffed up. Right? We try to help everybody with their self-esteem. Humility is not self-hate. But it is this, when confronted with the great and mighty God, we see ourselves, right, as we truly are. And then when we see God as he truly is, when we see ourselves as we truly are, then we can live in humility toward others. Okay, we're not, it's not all about I, me, my, right? It's about others. Humility, so number three, humility knows that we are dependent upon God for all grace and knowledge. So, Humility is God-focused. Humility then engenders in us a lowly spirit, right? Where we see ourselves as we truly are. And then humility knows that we're dependent upon God for all grace and knowledge, right? What did John the Baptist say when his disciples confronted him with the fact that people were leaving and going to Jesus, right? What did he say? A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. When we realize that we are all dependent upon God for everything, like our next breath, our next meal, our next minute, right, everything, then I think we're going to cease to have this entitlement mentality that says we're owed something, right? Friends, let me tell you something. God doesn't owe you anything, (laughs) nothing. God doesn't owe you anything. The mindset that says I'm owed something Right? The mindset that says, you owe me, right? That's the essence of pride. That's the essence of pride. And that leads to your destruction and the destruction of others. Because, let, I mean, let's quite frankly, let's look at it this way. If my life is all about me and my pride and my feelings and what I'm owed, how can I ever actually relate to somebody else? How can I ever actually help somebody else? How can I ever actually sacrifice for somebody else? You can't, right? Your pride, is if, if, it's, if everything is all about you, when you go help at the soup kitchen, you're going to be the dude standing here with your phone over here, you know, taking a selfie of you helping somebody in the soup kitchen. What's that mean? It ain't about, it ain't about the people that you're helping. It's about you, <laughs> You're going to post this on Facebook and say, look at me. I'm helping somebody in the soup kitchen. Yay, me. That's pride, right? That's selfishness. That's self-centeredness. That's not humility, right? I mean, but the mindset, you know, of owing God, when we, when we have this mindset that we owe God everything because we're a debtor to mercy, I mean, it is, it's in fact... God's mercy that he gives us one more breath and one more meal, right? And one more minute of life, right? When we deserve nothing good from God at all, right? That leads to a life of brokenhearted humility 
and service. Paul put it like this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4.32, right? Think about this. If you remember nothing from, from the message today, remember this. If you are treated better than you deserve, then you should have the mindset to treat others better than they deserve. If God treats you better than you deserve, you should treat others better than they deserve. Number four, humility knows that we're fallible and considers and learns from criticism and rebuke, right? So many people today refuse to learn. They refuse to listen. I'm always right, you know. I mean, isn't that why we have constant, I mean, Democrats, Republicans, just fighting all the time. Why? Because I'm right and you're wrong. No, I'm right and you're wrong. No, you know, everybody's right and nobody, you know, and everybody else is wrong. I'm right and everybody else is wrong, okay? That's a sign of pride and arrogance, right? Proverbs 12.1 and Proverbs 12.15 say this, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. <laughs> I love the Bible sometimes because it's just, it's just like plain, right? Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates reproof is stupid. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Now, I'm not saying all advice is good, and it doesn't say it always takes advice, but a wise man always listens to advice, right? Because that person just may be right, and you may not be. Or there's maybe a nugget there that you can take out of, okay? I'm going to leave that one there. Number five, finally, humility is a result of growing in Christ-likeness, right? Paul writes in Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Friends, when we become and we grow and we become more like Christ and we have the mind of Christ each and every day, right? How do we do that? By praying, reading, studying his word. Our want-tos, remember I always say our want-tos change. Things we want to do in our daily lives change, okay? We start to have this mind of Christ, right? We start to think like he thinks. We understand that, the, I mean, the son of God who is God humbled himself by becoming a man, by becoming a human being, right? He lived with us. He suffered with us. He even suffered for the sake of sinners on the cross. Friends, when we have a glimpse of who the Son of God is and how he humbled himself for our sake, then I think then we start to realize and I think it's going to drive us then to be more like Christ is with others. Okay? When we really truly understand that Christ was humbled in a way that we can't even fathom, just when we get a glimpse of this, then it causes us to say, hmm, who am I to be arrogant? Who am I to be a know-it-all? Who am I to just blow off my friends and neighbors? Right? Who am I not to say, yes, I will help you? Who am I not to say, yes, I'm wrong? 
Okay, when we see, when we get the mind of Christ, then that translates into how we live and work and love others. Okay? So we're going to pray and we're going to prepare our hearts for communion. All right, let's pray.